Blog Talk Radio. What's that? Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word up. That. Biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study of the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone that gives some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical Nobody wants to be all cold and theological But being a theologian's not optional Cause when you talk about Christ You're saying something doctrinal Either it accurately portrays his majesty Or it's a travesty Or worse, blasphemy You can do a global search This mark is crucial to the health of a local church The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we gotta see The importance of biblical theology And welcome to another episode of Theology Matters with the Palouse. I am one of your co-hosts, Melissa Palouse, and I am happy to be here with you from Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, Devin will actually be joining us during the second segment, and I'm going to cover the first segment. Um, So we are looking forward to a wonderful show. We have two wonderful guests with us today, and with that, we're um, going to jump right in to the show. Now, our first segment we're going to be dealing with the issue, um, with an issue that's very dear to my heart. As many of you know, I'm very involved in the um, in the pro-life movement in terms of pro-life activism. Um, um, I spend time at abortion clinics talking to women um, who are contemplating abortion, and Devin does as well. Um, and then we, you know, follow up with them and we um, form relationships with them. But a lot of um, a lot of the the focus. I think of our ministry as of late has been um, dealing in the area of pro-life apologetics and um, trying to equip the church and other believers and even non-Christians um, on why the pro-life position um, is um, is is the best is a defensible position and um, that babies should be protected from the moment of conception um, and that life is precious. So. This is an area that is obviously very near and dear to my heart, and I thought that for the first segment that we would bring on um, a good friend of this show um, and a friend of ours, um, Mr. Clinton Wilcox. And Clinton is um, a he's a staff apologist um, with uh, Life Training Institute, and that is a wonderful ministry um, uh, run by Scott Klusendorf. Uh, Clinton resides in uh, Fresno, California. He um, is a regular contributor to the Secular Pro-Life blog. His article featured on LifeNews.com, National Right to Life Committee blog as well. Um, he's a speaker and a mentor through Justice for All. He's spoken to hundreds of pro-life and pro-choice people in several college campuses across four states um, through various online mediums as well. 
and he's given presentations on podcasts and in front of churches and philosophy clubs. Um, Clinton, uh, if you follow him, he does a, a very good job of defending the pro-life position and engaging people, um, you know, what, what, whatever their, their religious background, but just really engaging them on the issue. And recently we had him on Theology Matters for a special debate episode with Matt Dillahoney um, that uh, took place um, in March, March 25th, and he did an excellent job um, representing the proposition. If you have not listened to that, that show, um, definitely go and download and listen to it. Thousands of people have already listened to it, and it's um, caused a lot of discussion um, in this area. But we are so happy to have Clinton back on the line with us since the debate. Clinton, how are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me. Good, good. Thank you for coming on so um, last minute um, and being flexible, and um, really excited uh, to share your knowledge and wisdom with with our with our guests and our, or with our listening audience, rather. Um, so, Clinton, tell us. Um, let's just jump into it because um, we don't have a whole lot of time. Obviously, the pro life issue. You could, you could, you know, this has been debated and debated and debated, and, and you could, you know, uh, discuss this for for eternity, <laughs> but. Um, right. Uh, give us maybe a, a few arguments that are popular um, that that typical typically we hear um, against the pro-life position, and some ways that we can maybe answer those those questions and objections. Uh, sure. Did you want me to give arguments for the pro-life case or the pro-choice case? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's do it that way. Let's let's argue from the pro-life position. So give us okay. maybe our strongest uh, strongest argument. Sure. Yeah, well, the most basic pro-life argument there is is just that um, it's, it's immoral and should be illegal to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Abortion kills an innocent human being. Therefore, abortion is immoral and should be illegal. And that's really the most basic case. Uh, embryologists are consistently in agreement that human life biologically begins the fertilization. And this is something that pro-choice philosophers like Peter Singer, David Boonin, Michael Tooley, etc., accept as well. Uh, because the science does point in that direction, that the unborn are biologically alive and members of our, of our human species. Uh, so if it's wrong to kill uh, an adult like you and me, then the, the argument goes that if the unborn do not differ in any morally relevant way from us, then it would also be wrong, uh, immoral, and should be illegal to kill the unborn as well. And so that's mm-hmm. basically where the debate lies, is is there... Um, is, is there a morally relevant difference between the unborn and us that would justify our killing them? Of course, pro-life people say no. Pro-choice people say yes. Hmm. Right. And so, what what would um, what would some of the objections that you heard uh, to that argument be? Okay. Um, occasionally, I, I do hear people questioning the science, um, but. Again, it's, it's not something that's debated because the question of when human life begins biologically has been settled. So um, I mean, it, it's really just a show, too. I mean, the unborn are alive because they grow and they exhibit the properties of living things. They're human because they're, they have human DNA and they're the product of human parents. And they're organisms, they're members of our species because they're on a self-directed path of development into more mature versions of themselves. So uh, zygote, embryo, fetus are just stages of development of the same entity. So uh, the argument from science has really been settled. Um, Some philosophers will try to argue that it's not 
uh, it's not a biological question, as we know, but it's a philosophical one. Are the unborn uh, uh, different from us in such a way that we can justify killing them? Some try to argue from consciousness, some from self-awareness, uh, some because the unborn can't feel pain, uh, those kinds of things. But the problem with arguing from uh, from from the presently exercisable capacities, uh, you know, the, the present ability to function in those ways, is that they're actually confusing being a person with functioning as a person. You're not a person once you can fulfill those functions, but you can fulfill those functions because you are a person. Just like you develop human parts because you're a human being and you exist before you develop your parts, so you are also a person and you exist before you develop personal properties, because otherwise there'd be nothing there that would become personal if there was no person there, there beforehand. So aside from that, there are a couple other problems with that too, in that you would have to justify infanticide, because, um, because the arguments that philosophers give, such as um, you know, communication, um, self-awareness, consciousness, etc., um, you would have to say that it would be permissible to kill infants because they also differ mm -hmm. from us in those ways if, if the philosopher wants to justify abortion. So that would lead yeah. to the problem that you would have to justify infanticide, and it would also lead to the episodic problem, that your personhood, which is a very, very important property because it's, it's what grants your rights, your personhood mm -hmm. would come and go. Whenever you cease functioning as a person, for example, when you fall asleep or go under general anesthesia before surgery, etc., you would lose your personhood and then regain it once you start functioning as a person again. So you're also left with, with the episodic problem, as they call it. Okay. Right. So we're dealing with um, development does not um, negate one's, what, it doesn't negate what one, their, their, um, their essence of what they are as a human being is what right. you're saying, basically. Just different right. stages of development. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I could go more into it. Basically, you're you're identical with yourself through all points of your life. It, it mm -hmm. is what the pro-life position basically boils down to, is that I am the same entity that was in my mother's womb. Even from the single-celled zygote stage, that single-celled zygote was me, just like I am me now. And so the pro-life position entails that we are the same entity with the same rights and same value um, as human beings through all points of our life. Right. Yeah, that's a, a very great point. Um, so let me ask you, because in my dialogues that I, I've seen with um, those who represent the pro-choice position, it doesn't seem to be a, a debate about when life begins anymore. Um, that's kind of, you know, they kind of, of grant that. And so it's more a, um, a discussion about personal autonomy, you know, my body, my choice, you know, the, my rights as a woman, um, and, and I have control, I should have control over my reproductive organs, per se. So is that what you're seeing as well, as well Clinton? Yeah, uh, I still get that as well. In the academic literature, that argument is still defended by a few uh, philosophers like David Boonin defends it in his book, A Defense of Abortion. Judith Jarvis Thompson defended it in her famous essay, A Defense of Abortion, back in 1973. But it's not really mm -hmm. defended in the academic literature anymore because the question really boils down to now, are the unborn persons? And that's where the debate is. When we talk about, uh, about bodily rights, we have to remember that in the vast, vast majority of of pregnancies, the man and the woman engage willfully in an act that is intrinsically ordered toward procreation. So it's the man and the woman who are responsible for both the embryo's creation and for placing that embryo in a state of dependence upon the mother. So because of that, she uh, has obligations now not to kill the unborn entity, but, but to preserve its life. Right. So this, this issue of, of bodily autonomy, 
um, you did a very good job with Matt um, um, Dillahunty in the debate of uh, discussing that, you know, that argument and how it fails in terms of um, abortion and, and uh, the unborn child. So can you go, go into that somewhat why um, personal autonomy does not, um, does not necessitate the taking of the life of another human being? I'm sorry, could you, uh, could you rephrase the question? Um, how personal autonomy um, choice, reproductive choice, how does, how does that play into this discussion and why is that not a legitimate um, you know, just, uh, reason to take the life of a child? Well, it's, it's basically because uh, parents have obligations to their own children. And considering that the mother and the father, the, the ones who actually engaged in the sex act that created the embryo, uh, that grounds her, uh, her obligations to this child. Because she willfully engaged in this act that created an embryo and that resulted in her pregnancy, she now waives her right to bodily autonomy because now it would, it would be wrong to basically put someone on your property and then kill them and claim self-defense. I mean, that's like you know, dra dragging someone onto your house and then shooting them and, um, and trying to argue in court that you were just defending yourself. Well, it doesn't work because you're responsible for them being there. Right. Right. So there, there is a responsibility of the parent to um, preserve the child and to protect the child, you know, not, not take it to right. life. Um, yeah. What are some What are some other, or you could either expand on that, or or go into maybe another argument, Clinton, that you've heard, or or a defense um, of the pro life position. Yeah. Um, well, the reason that um, well, one thing I, I guess I could talk briefly about one of the the arguments that Matt raised in, in our debate is that he was arguing, um, I, I tried to press him on the question of personhood and trying to, trying to see when he believes the unborn become persons, because that's incredibly important to the debate. I mean, that's where the academic literature is right now. And he refused to take a position because he argued from bodily rights, and he believes that bodily rights kind of includes the personhood argument, um, in that he doesn't have to argue against personhood because he's arguing from bodily rights, but that's incorrect, because Thompson, in her essay, when she originally defended the concept of bodily rights, she, uh, she assumed personhood of the unborn, and that's what, what bodily rights arguments do, is they don't include mm -hmm. personhood, they assume personhood. So if you're going to argue mm -hmm. from bodily rights, you're tacitly assuming that the unborn is a full human person. And since Matt never responded to my personal arguments, um, then he was basically caught in a corner, essentially, because he tacitly admitted that the unborn is a full human person. And so now um, you have to have a discussion about which entity's rights have greater bearing in the issue. He, he continued to argue that uh, argue as if there was no second person, when in fact bodily rights arguments kind of assume that they are. So that was one of the things that Matt was trying to get away with during our debate that is kind of an illegitimate move. Right. Yeah, what, what were some of, we can, we can even dissect the debate somewhat, because um, I know that there was a lot of discussion afterwards um, about it. Right. Um, what were some of the um, points, or, or maybe you can go over one or two or however many, that you thought um, Matt um, maybe misinterpreted your, your arguments or, uh, or something of that nature, just drawing in on your arguments? 
Yeah, I, I don't think he necessarily misunderstood the arguments so much, except he did misunderstand my, my argument that he has to defend his anti-personhood stance, which he didn't because he continued to argue for bodily rights. But for the most part, he, he seemed to understand them. He just seemed to um, kind of wave them away, I guess. And um, another argument that he used, which I see come up from time to time, which is not a very good argument, but he made it, and I occasionally see people online who make this argument. It, it goes back to uh, philosopher Eileen McDonough basically stating that it's not the woman who, who engages in the sex act that makes herself pregnant. It's the embryo that forces pregnancy upon her. And she's just engaging in an act with the foreseeable result that you become pregnant. But that's just a, a very specious argument because uh, by having sex, the woman and the man set the events in motion um, to, to basically uh, impregnate her. If, uh, if they had never had sex, the embryo wouldn't, wouldn't even exist in the first place in order to impregnate her. Right. So that's a, a specious argument as well. But it is one that I see come up from time to time. Right. Well, um, Letitia, um, you know, my um, co uh, one of our co-hosts on um, Pro-Life Fridays, or True Life Fridays now, um, and we've had you on the show, she is on the line now, and she um, has a follow-up question regarding um, uh, some the debate and some point, a point that Matt made. Letitia, you there? Hey, I'm here. Welcome to Theology Matters. <laughs> hey, great to be here. Hello, Letitia. <laughs> Hi, Clinton. Good to see you again. <laughs> as far as seeing you again, yes. Uh, yeah, I had a question about um, Judith Jarvis Thompson's argument. Um, yeah, we've made a lot of uh, about how it concedes the personhood of the unborn, and uh, what if it is that that's not the point? I think uh, sometimes they can say that the argument is kind of a last ditch effort. It's uh, even if the but-in-fact kind of argument. So even if uh, we can concede the personhood of the unborn, but in fact, you know, we don't concede that, but even if the bodily rights argument still kind of is their, is their foundational right. argument there. So I'm, we could say that, yeah, they are conceding it for the sake of the argument, but uh, they don't have to concede it for the sake, uh, uh, in metaphysical terms. Yeah, I, I think if it's someone that I'm talking to on a relational level, like someone out of the college that I'm doing college outreach and run into as opposed to debating like I was debating that, I think in that situation I would probably want to have a, a continuing conversation with them about whether or not the unborn are full human persons. Because if the unborn are not persons, then you don't even have to argue bodily rights. I mean, if, if the unborn is just a part of her body, then it's no different than having a tooth pulled or a mole removed. I mean, go have as many abortions as you want. There's nothing wrong with it. But if the unborn are human persons, that's when you start coming into a, a, a moral dilemma and a conflict of rights. So if I'm, if I'm uh, encountering someone just in a one-on-one -on -one situation like that, what I would want to do is I would want to just continue having a discussion until – until they're convinced that the unborn is a full human person. And then once they do, I would move on to bodily rights. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great answer. Um, I, I think that the argument personally has run its course, that the, the pro-choice, pro-abortion side really has none, really academically none to draw on. Uh, but they seem to kind of back up to this bodily rights argument as if it's new all the time. I think I just read an article or a blog post maybe maybe months ago saying, ah, yes, 
that may be so, but we always have bodily rights. And uh, as if they were just making that argument for the first time in 40 years. Right, yeah. Uh, I I believe I've seen that article too. And here's the problem, is that people are relying on, like you're saying, 40-year-old arguments, and they're completely unaware that there's been 40 years of pro-life and pro-choice philosophy about bodily rights that has been done. And so just by saying uh, that, okay, we have bodily rights, therefore we win, well, that doesn't make any sense because, you know, there's the responsibility objection, which as far as I'm concerned is a defeater for bodily rights uh, because she's responsible for placing the unborn child, not only responsible for the child's existence, but responsible for placing that child in a state of dependence upon her. I think that totally blows away, uh, you know, blows bodily rights arguments out of the water. Um, Mm -hmm. Additionally, it seems to indicate that pro-choice people have different worldview assumptions than we do. Because if you're arguing bodily rights, what you're essentially saying is that a parent has no obligations to their child unless they're chosen. And the problem with that is, number one, the reason we call them obligations is because they're not chosen. You don't choose your obligations, you just have obligations. And number two, I think it's barbaric to say that, um, that a parent has no obligations to her child unless she chooses to. Because, again, why would her obligations stop at birth? If she wanted to just have her child killed, uh, you know, at two years old because she doesn't want to deal with the child anymore, then, you know, why, why, why mm-hmm. stop at birth? Why, you know, why can't she just, uh, ne- you know, uh, negate her obligations uh, after mm-hmm. birth end? Right. Yeah, it's, it's this, this idea that there's no, this, this total detachment from, from the child who um, has been, you know, like you said, created in a sense by the parents is, um, right. it just seems like there is a, a total misunderstanding of that relationship. <laughs> that dependency isn't, um, isn't you know, a bad thing or, or unwarranted. It, it happened due to the actions of the, the mother and father. So, right, and I, I think be, it would be, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. Okay, I was just going to say, I, 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 I kind of consider it axiomatic that, that children have certain natural rights. And the, pro, the pro-choice position entails that, that children have absolutely no rights, uh, despite the fact that they weren't the ones who brought them into existence. Uh, the parents are. So I think that, I think that there are uh, natural rights that children have, including the right to life, but also including um, the right to, to both of their parents and, and other rights that, that we have by virtue of belonging to the human species. And so I, I, I find the, the pro-choice position, I, I know there are logical arguments for it, but I, I find the pro-choice position um, to simply be absurd and, and to be, you know, um, I mean, I, I have a lot of pro-choice friends, so I don't want to be negative toward them. I, I, you know, I like my pro-choice friends and I, you know, want the best for them, but it, it seems like the pro-choice position just entails that children are commodities to be dealt with any way we want to instead of um, intrinsically valuable human beings like we are. Right. And you had touched on earlier about the um, the argument uh, from dependency and how um, that, again, does not uh, rule out one's um, humanity. Um, can you touch on that again? I know you touched on it briefly earlier. Um, sure. Could, could you repeat that, please? Um, how one's level of dependency um, does not um, uh, negate their, their, their not being human, of one, right. one human race. 
Yeah, um, you know, we, we talk about often uh, Stephen Schwartz in his book, The Moral Question of Abortion, came up with what we consider to be the sled test, showing that there are four fundamental differences between the unborn, uh, the unborn and us, but none of these differences are morally relevant. That's size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. And so one's degree of dependency uh, is not a morally relevant reason to allow us to kill them. They don't lose their humanity just because they're more dependent than we are. In fact, it seems to me to be a truism that those who are more dependent on us have, um, that we have a greater obligation to help those who are more dependent. And since the children are entirely dependent on the mother, instead of the mother being able to kill the child, as pro-choice people argue, I think that gives the mother a greater obligation because she's the only one that can help that child. Um, JSA director David Lee gives the following argument responding to that point, that if you're, if, you are, if you're the last one out of a pool and you hear a splash and everyone's gone, lifeguard's gone, and you look down and to your horror, there's a, there's a child uh, on the, down at the bottom of the deep end of that pool. Do you have an obligation to help the child, or, you know, provided you can swim, or can you just walk away saying, well, you know, I don't have an obligation because I'm the only one uh, who can help. I'm the only one that that child is dependent on to, to save it. So do I have an obligation to rescue the child, or can I walk away? Well, it seems like that would give me a greater obligation since I'm the only one who can help that child. Right. That's a great point. Um, absolutely. Um, can you give, um, since we have a few more minutes left, um, maybe another uh, strong argument for the pro-life position, uh, Clinton? Um well, sure. I mean, there's, you know, there's uh, philosophical arguments I can give. Um, we've touched on personhood briefly. Um, and th there's an argument that Frank Beckwith defends called the substance view, which I, I did touch on briefly uh, also. It, it's just basically the idea that through all points in our life, zygote to natural death, we are the same entity through all points in our life because a substance, every living thing is a substance. And a substance is just an entity that maintains its identity through change. And since everything that, that, the, that the zygote I was in my mother's womb, everything that, that I am now and everything I can do now was written into my DNA. And so, uh, and it's in my nature to develop those things. And any change that you make that's in your nature to make are identity-preserving changes. In other words, you don't lose your identity and become something new when this change occurs. You are the same uh, entity through that change. And so that, that's basically the idea behind the substance view. Okay, gotcha. Um, and in terms of your um, dialogues on college campuses and that, um, what, what do you see the climate as regarding um, this issue, Clint? Do you see more students becoming pro-life, or do you see more students um, being militantly pro-choice? What, what, what are your observations? It really, it depends on the college campus. Um, I actually do kind of see that there are different arguments that, that more people take seriously on a particular campus. Like one campus might have more moral relativists than another campus does. So um, I think it really just depends on the campus. But for the most part, um, we, we do get some people who are offended at our being there. And occasionally, there will be a protester at a JFA outreach, uh, JFA being Justice for All. But for the most part, we actually have a lot of really good dialogues. And we do end up changing hearts and minds by being out there and talking to people, relating to them one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the dialogue is so important, and I find that many times it doesn't happen. Um, there's just a lot of um, 
you know, yelling back and forth and a lot of right. straw men back and forth and this sort of thing. But that's why I appreciate right. what you're doing um, is that you're taking the time to really present your case in a logical uh, way and you're training people to do that as well. And you're, um, you know, you're you're not coming to it with assumptions. You're you're open um, with the people right. that you're talking with. Um, so I think that that's so important. Um, tell us, Clinton, um, about what you are, are doing with uh, Life Training Institute and how you all are um, getting this uh, message out to equip students um, to defend the pro-life position. And how is that, how is that, okay. that mission going? Okay. Well, um, my, my current job with LTI is to write articles for the blog and I answer questions that are submitted to the website. That's mostly what I'm doing right now. It will involve me some travel and speaking in the future. Um, that's just right now. Uh, Life Training Institute, the other members um, actually go out to different uh, high school and I believe junior high campuses to talk to these young people about, about abortion. And so whereas AFA mainly hits college campuses, uh, Life Training Institute mainly hits uh, high schools and, and junior highs. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, you know, they're doing just a, a wonderful job with it too. And so with organizations like, like Life Training Institute and Justice for All, I mean, you know, abortion states are numbered. Right. And it's important that we continue to train our young people because this is, this right. is uh, on the college campus. This is the one of you know other than things that's marriage. This is the issue that um, is being being fought, and especially with a lot of the women's studies um, departments and um, the sociology yeah. departments and anthropology departments. So this um, it's important that we are able to present our case um, clearly and articulate. Um, articulately and um, right. and and well, and so I appreciate what yeah. you're doing, Clinton, and um, yeah, I appreciate. And, and the Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say that that's why I really appreciate uh, the work that Life Training Institute and Justice for All is doing because they are going out, having these dialogues, having good conversations with people instead of what we usually think of the name calling and screaming, and they're they're training pro-life people to make the best argument for the pro-life case and to take pro-choice arguments seriously. Uh, so I, so I, I'm really appreciative of the ministries of both of those organizations. You know, and it was really through the, um, I have a, a good friend, people say, you know, what difference does it make? You know, you know why, why are you spending time talking about this issue with people? It's interesting, a, a really good friend of mine who was an unbeliever, um, it was the abortion issue that actually brought him to Christ. And I'm not saying that happens all the time, but it was right. through looking at the arguments for um, humanity, for, you know, for his, for his, yeah. on his, his worth as a human being that led right. him to, um, to, this, to this position that, you know, God cares and God died for me and, and all these sort of things. So, um, but, but really sitting on the, the objective um, uh, moral uh, position that abortion is absolutely wrong. It really was a beeline to the cross for him. So right. this issue does matter, and it can really help people in more ways than one. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, talking about abortion uh, really opens the doors for a lot of conversations, conversations about mm -hmm. God, about the nature of the human person, uh, whether you know, morality is objective or subjective, those kinds of things. So it really does open the door to presenting the gospel a lot of times. Absolutely. Well, again, Clint, we thank you for the work that you're doing. I appreciate you so much for being on. I always appreciate talking to you and learning from you. And keep up the awesome work, and we'll be continuing to pray for you and your ministry. And um, God bless. Well, thank you very much. You too.
God bless Clinton. God bless you. Well, folks, that was a wonderful segment. I hope that you learned a lot about defending um, the sanctity of human life and that you um, use that information um, and go out and share it with others. Um, what we're going to do at this time is go to a commercial break. We will be returning with our uh, second segment and our main guest for the rest of the show. And Devin will be joining you for that segment. Uh, thank you so much for uh, your, your um, attentiveness through the first segment. And God bless. We'll be right back. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. Apologist. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Frank, is truth true for you, but not for me? I always hear that, and I usually say, is that true for everybody? Is true for you, but not for me, true for everybody? Because if true for you, but not for me, is true for everybody, then true for you and not for me can't be true because it's true for everybody. (laughs) I know that can give you intellectual constipation, but that's because it's self-defeating. It's actually, there's an easier way of illustrating this. True for you, but not for me. Say, sure, go try that with your bank teller. Go to your bank teller one day and say, look, I'd like $100,000 out of my account. The bank teller looks at your account and says, I'm sorry, sir, you only have $47.16 in your account. That's easy to get the money. Bobby, you simply say, that's true for you, but not for me. Give me the hundred grand. Are you going to get the money? No, you're not. If it's true, there's only $47.16 in your account. That's true for all people at all times and all places when referring to your account at that time. It's just true. And by the way, it's true that Jesus rose from the dead. If he really did, that's true for all people at all times and all places. If he really did. Of course, it's not true if he didn't rise from the dead. And I think the evidence is quite strong that he did. So saying it's true for you but not for me may sound good. It's the mantra of our culture. But it's self-defeating. It's logically self-defeating. And it just doesn't work. Sounds like you're trying to say that truth corresponds to reality. I am. I'm actually (laughs) trying to say that. Here's a Renewing Your Mind Minute with Dr. R.C. Sproul. The situation at the time of the flood was a situation of pure moral relativism, where everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It sounds like a description that was written in yesterday's newspaper. And when God destroyed all of that, the descendants of Noah come up with an idea to do exactly the same thing. They're going to build their own city, a city that will endure. And the crowning achievement of that city will be the tower that reaches up to heaven, the Tower of Babel. For today's special offer, visit renewingyourmind.org. You're listening to the Ankerberg Minute with apologist and best-selling author Dr. John Ankerberg. Some Christians are uninterested in the secular philosophical ideas taught in our universities because they seem unimportant. But is it right to ignore these ideas? I believe we do so to our detriment. Ideas being debated in our colleges and universities will eventually make their way to our government leaders and spread throughout society. The great Princeton theologian J. Gresham Machen once said, What is today a matter of academic speculation begins tomorrow to move armies and pull down empires. As Christians, we must not stand by and allow unbiblical ideas to gain ground. 
Jesus insisted that we love God with our minds. It is part of our duty to engage the world of ideas with biblical truth. For additional resources on this topic, log on to johnankerberg.org. All right, folks, welcome back to the show. And we are going to transition into the second part of our show, thanks to my lovely bride for filling in for me and for our good friend Clinton Wilcox for uh, calling in and and helping us out with those uh, issues on pro-life, such an important topic. Uh, Be sure to check out the debate uh, that we recently hosted between him and the atheist Matt Dillahoney on this very issue. So uh, if you go to facebook.com slash theology matters with the Palouse, uh, you'll be able to, to find that uh, debate. So moving on to our second part of the program, uh, we have been joined several times in the past uh, by Dr. Sadler, and he is one of the favorite guests uh, on the show that we've had. We've been kind of doing a series on Christian thinkers, and we have been looking at uh, guys such as Anselm, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, and uh, we have been doing, uh, this is the second part of Augustine, and what we'll do is we'll just throw a link up there for all the the shows in the series that we've been doing, Uh, but this is, uh, it's going to be a very informative show. If you guys have ever listened to Dr. Sadler before, uh, he's he's great. He is an author and instructor at Murray's College who received both his master's and Ph.D., Uh, in philosophy from Southern Illinois Carbondale. He's also the founder of Reason.io, an organization that brings philosophy into practice, making complex classical philosophical ideas accessible for a wide audience of professionals, students, and lifelong learners. And the topic we're going to be looking at uh, today is Augustine, St. Augustine and his view of evil, kind of the, the nature of evil and and uh, help us kind of deal with some of these harder, harder issues. So, Dr. Sadler, are you there? I am. Oh, so glad that uh, so glad you were able to join us tonight. We're really looking forward to uh, part two of of Augustine. Yeah, that was, uh, and also part two of the show. That was a really great intro segment. Uh, I kind of like this new format that you guys have got. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, you know, trying trying some new stuff, you know, and uh, going good. I, I just want to add a couple of stuff. You'd added a couple of new new things. I just wanted people to know that uh, how I found Dr. Sadler was on his YouTube channel, uh, flipping through uh, some different videos on philosophy because it's a big interest of mine, and I ran across his videos. And one of the things I really enjoy about uh, your videos is you, you're able to take a lot of these difficult topics and concepts, you're really able to kind of put them on the lower shelf for, for guys like me that are able to get that. And uh, I see you recently passed a million views. Yeah, that was a big milestone for us. So we're, yeah, we're, is... we're pretty excited about that. Yeah, because it really is is kind of helping um, put an interest, I think, in in philosophy. I, I 
I'm sure that, uh, you know, a lot of people have been interested before, but a lot of people, you know, I'm, I was one of them that kind of, you start hearing these concepts and you start thinking, man, is this practical in any type of way? Don't philosophers just sit around thinking, uh, you know, is the desk real? Am I real? Uh, but you really <laughs> yeah. help to, to bring out some of these thoughts. You know what the uh, the the sort of secret to that is for me is uh, my entire career I've been teaching undergraduates in in core classes who didn't originally want to be there. They were taking the classes because they were required classes, and almost none of them were philosophy majors. So I couldn't count on anybody coming in with any previous background or. Um, even really any any receptivity to it. And so I had to learn how to make the case for how this stuff could possibly be relevant to them. There's that, and then <laughs> coming from a blue-collar family where everybody else asks the same questions, like, what are you doing? What what possible use could this stuff have? So, you know, after a while, you, you, you start thinking in terms of uh, applicability. Right. The stuff we're going to... The stuff we're going to talk about today, though, is, is pretty easy to relate to. I mean, we experience evil. Augustine himself is a, is a guy who's really easy to relate to if you read his confessions um, because he, you know, he was kind of a screw-up. Um, actually, not kind, not kind of a screw-up. He was a major screw-up for a good portion of his life, you know, and, and he tells right. us about it. Well, let's let's uh, let's I guess dive into that and just uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, who he is and and I guess why why should we care? Okay, so Augustine is one of my favorite figures to to read and to teach in part because he he doesn't pull any punches and he uh, he he was a guy who was just throwing himself into one thing after another after another, but constantly seeking something something better, you know, and that's what drew him to God eventually. So he he's got a, a really massive influence on on Western Christianity, um, you know, all the way into the the Middle Ages. Really, you could say that he is the dominant figure from his time on, you know, all the way into the Scholastic period. Um, and he's kind of a nice bridge figure in a couple ways, too, because he's read by both Catholics and by Protestants attentively, you know, not just right. sort of uh, get through the chapter sort of stuff. Um, but he's, you know, he's paid attention to, and so he provides a good, yeah, kind of a useful language for, for inter, um, interdenominational dialogue. And then he's also this bridge figure between the ancient world, which he knew intimately because uh, he grew up in it, and the new, really, first beginning of the, the modern world, you know, in, in the medieval period, after things all started to fall apart. Um, it may sound a little weird to talk about, you know, the, the, the medievals as being moderns, but in, in a way, they, they are, because they're, they're, you know, they're reacting to a new time, new conditions. And so he was... Yeah, he, he was one of those guys who you might say his books were there at the ground floor when all of these intellectuals throughout the Middle Ages are trying to make sense out of the new world that they're, they're stuck in. Um, so he's, you know, there, there's a couple of works that I think a lot of people are pretty familiar with, they've heard of, you know, his mm -hmm. confessions. He's, mm -hmm. 
She's one of the first autobiographers. Um, and he doesn't, uh, he doesn't embellish, you know, he doesn't try to make it look good for himself. He, he confe- it's, it's a real confession. He's, he's actually saying, here's how I screwed up. Here's where I wandered around for a long time. Here's the, the problems that I had. And here's how, how God drew me in. So that's a fun work to read. And then, you know, one of his massive works is The City of God, which to, to some people may feel a little bit, um, I don't know, a little bit dated because he's responding to arguments that were made by, by Romans, pagan Romans at the time, that were saying that Christianity was, was weakening the empire. But I think, you know, if you go back to it, not only is there a lot of really cool doctrine there, but... Mm-hmm. Um, some of the things that, that people are, are arguing are relevant today to the situation that we're in where, where people often look at Christianity as you know, a big problem that we have to somehow overcome or wean people away from. Uh, so I think it's kind of, kind of relevant. And then you know, he, he wrote on the Trinity, on Christian doctrine, on, on free choice of the will, on the teacher, all these works that people kept reading over and over again and using as kind of uh, touch points for figuring out um, how do we make sense out of Christianity in any sort of intellectual way. Um, so he's he's a really important figure. Uh, you can tell that I'm very enthusiastic about him. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah it, it, it's interesting because it's 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 like you say you go back to the point where the kind of the uh, bridge figure for for Catholics and Protestants. Uh, in the Reformed camp where I'm at, um, we love him. <laughs> we oh, yeah. really love him because he's, you know, uh, really did so much as far as uh, putting together, uh, with, as far as the will and the need for, for God's grace. And, uh, yeah, it's it's funny because, you know, Protestant, especially the Reformed Protestants, uh, you know, really, really love Augustine. Well, it's, I mean, it's not surprising because Calvin loved Augustine. So, you know, right. one, of, one of the heavy, big heavy hitters early on says this guy is a must-read. Um, it's sort of like, you know, there's a similar thing with, with, uh, in the Catholic Church with Benedictines. St. Benedict, you know, he wrote a rule for monastic life, and he wasn't the first guy to do that. Actually, Augustine had, had a rule as well. But um, Benedict, in his rule, he, he gave a recommended, very short, recommended reading list. So John Cassian, who's one of the, uh, the important uh, fathers of the church as well, he got read by these, these Benedictine monks, you know, generation after generation after generation, because Benedict said, well, you've got to read this guy. Uh, there's something to him. And then they, they drew all this, this wisdom from him. So it's sort of like that with Calvin and Augustine, you know, so long as there are Reformed Protestants, they're going to be reading Augustine. Yeah. <laughs> you, can, right. you can take that as guaranteed. Um, yeah, I know that my, my Anglican friends, you know, when I talk to them, you know, many of them are Reformed as well. And, and you ask them, so are you, are you a Calvinist? And they say, no, you know, we don't, I don't like that word. We're Augustinian. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, yeah, you're right. It kind of goes back to that era with, with Augustine. Yeah, Maurice Blondell, the guy that I actually did my dissertation on way, way back when I was a graduate student, he had this piece that he wrote called The 
ever-renewed fecundity of Augustinian wisdom, if it's how you translate it into to English. And his, his view that he expressed there was uh, that Augustine's works are very rich. There's a lot of stuff in there. There's a, sometimes it can be a little bit hard to digest, like any rich meal. And so some people might be more selective in what they, they take. And if you know if you if you take just some aspects of his work and then emphasize them too strongly, you can you can go off the track. But mm-hmm. what's the what's what's the remedy for that? Well, it's to go back to Augustine because Augustine himself will have seen somebody doing something similar and written about it somewhere. It's sort of like with Thomas Aquinas, you know. Um, is there is there something that he he didn't cover? Yeah, there's there's some things, but but you got to work pretty hard and you got to look quite a bit, you know, to find things that that he didn't address in some way or or another. So Augustine is kind of like that, you know. If you, I don't know if you have this. Um, there there were these uh, uh, volumes of the Church Fathers, the Antonician and, and post nicene Church Fathers, and I bought them from Christian Sellers Book Club because they were, but the entire set was on special for like $200. And wow. it takes up an entire shelf, you know. Um, well, about a good quarter of that shelf is all Augustine, because the guy oh, wow. wrote and wrote and wrote. So so there is a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, material to, to go through. So yeah, today, whether whether one agrees with him or not, I think we, we we should say because of the amount that he has wrote and the influence he's had, we got to pay attention to him, whether you like him or not. You know, same with same with someone like Thomas Aquinas, who I who I love, but uh, yeah, you know, Protestants, we need to pay attention to these guys uh, because of the volumes that they've wrote and the influence that they've had. Yeah, and there's also this tendency for each generation to think that they are going to reinvent the wheel when it comes to <laughs> exegesis or doctrine. And so it's kind right. of refreshing sometimes to go back to these old church fathers and, and see, oh, they already, they already discussed that. And maybe you disagree with how they, how they you know, resolved a particular issue, but you mm-hmm. can see that you know, we don't, we don't have the burden of trying to rethink everything from the, from the ground up you know, which for me right. is very good. They're smarter than us, so we can we can just kind of kind of let them. Since they've done the heavy lifting, uh, just try and understand a lot of it, I guess, and see where they're where they're going because they've they've thought through these issues probably more than we have. <laughs> yeah, I I know that, and I I know we haven't gotten into the material yet, but I think this is kind of a good point to make. These guys. You know, they did this full time. That's you know, that's what they occupied themselves with. And so if if I have the opportunity to go to somebody like Augustine who's thought longer and deeper and harder about these kind of uh problems right. that I have, I'm I'm doing myself a favor by 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 doing that, we have so many distractions today. You know, we have, we have to have day jobs, and uh, you know, there's there's the, the TV and, and you know, just all sorts of all sorts of things to keep us busy. Right. We do ourselves uh, a great benefit by going back to these people who really invested the time to think think these things out. So let's uh, let's talk about uh, about evil. Um, 
Augustine is a guy who who knew it, you know, quite well, just just like the way that the rest of us do by having bad things happen to him. You know, he experienced death, he experienced sickness, he uh, lost friends, he uh, found himself doing stupid things even as a kid and wondering what's wrong with me, you know. And so he, you know, he he takes a very experiential uh, viewpoint on this, but then he also tries to put it in a theological framework to reflect on um, ultimately, you know, where, where does evil come from? What is it? And so in Augustine, what we're going to see is that um, what we can call, you know, metaphysical questions about the very nature of evil itself um, and moral questions, you know, what should we do, what shouldn't we do, and, and the, you know, questions of theodicy, why does God allow evil, how did evil get into the universe if, if God created it, all those are kind of um, strung together. I don't want to say that they're just mixed up or confused, because they're not, but Augustine realizes that you, you can't completely separate these out from each other, and that every one of us has to face up to these problems Within the context of our our uh, our lives, as, as we're stuck with them. Um, so there's quite a few books that he in which he talks about evil because you know again it's something that we run into quite a lot. Uh, the City of God. There's a couple chapters where he he looks at it. The Confession, of course, on free choice of the will. And then he wrote a book, um, which is you know kind of like a best hits compiling these together, and it's called On the Nature of the Good Against the Manichaeans. That one's particularly good for, for looking at his, his discussion of, of evil because Augustine was himself a Manichaean for a while, you know. So and what, is it, what was the Manichaean? What were they? Well, they were a, you could call them a Gnostic sect, but they were really, they really had the status of a church, um, they, they managed to do a lot of uh, uh, missionary work and, and actually had a presence in, in Central Asia for, for quite a while. And Manny was this guy who saw himself as a prophet, blended together a couple different religious viewpoints, some of it coming from a kind of unorthodox Zoroastrianism, some of it coming from Christianity, some of it coming from Buddhism, and started a new religion. And it, it caught on. Uh, it drew quite a bit from, from, from Gnosticism. So there were some you know, key themes of Gnosticism, like the world being fundamentally bad, um, the view that the, the, the creator of the world is not the true God, that we're sort of imprisoned within this, this uh, vast prison network that, that comprises the world, um, and the kind of elitism that went with it, too. Um, you know, the, the, the view that they were the, 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 the spiritual people as opposed to the church people who were just kind of um, psychical, they call them, meaning soul people. Uh, all of that was part of this. And then there were some other things mixed in as well. And it, it, it was very um, attractive to some people in Rome because it had a sort of total explanation for why things are as screwed up as they are. And, and their explanation 
was the Gnostic one, that, well, God didn't do all this because God doesn't really have anything to do with this world. Um, this world was, was created by, you know, uh, a demiurge, a, a, a worker who, who messed it up. And the goal is to, to ultimately liberate ourselves from this. So Augustine, you know, he was attracted to this doctrine for a while, uh, but he, he found that it didn't satisfy him. And so ultimately he, he left, and he didn't immediately leave and then join the Catholic Church. He you know, sort of wandered a bit uh, spiritually, you could say, um, but he, at least at that point he knew, well, these guys don't have it right. I, I don't know who doesn't have, who has it right, but these guys don't. And it took him a, a while longer. Again, this is all detailed in, in the confessions. And okay. you know, Augustine, Augustine leaving didn't, you know, end the movement or anything. He was just some, some <laughs> guy who belonged to it. Right. So he writes um, books against the Manichaeans. And against other heretics as well at other times, against the Pelagians, against the Donatists. Um, but the ones that we're, we're particularly interested in, as far as evil goes, are these Manichaeans, because they had this view um, of creation as being being bad. So, um, so was that was that kind of like? Um uh, because what Plato Plato had that view, right? That kind of the physical is bad, and um, only that which is kind of uh, immaterial and eternal is good. Is that kind of where, what they were where they were getting that from? Yeah, um, the the notion of the demiurge comes from Plato's Timaeus, and. It's not quite clear whether Plato himself, you know, was just sort of putting this out there as a hypothesis or whether he really, really um, bought into it. He, he clearly did think that the body and, and matter was fundamentally bad, but he didn't think that it had a, a um, he didn't think that it had the sort of separate existence as evil that the Manichaeans were attributing to it. For, for Plato, okay. everything that, that we can see is uh, it, it doesn't really have being. Um, mm-hmm. We think we think that it does, but it, it, and it has a kind of being. This is very difficult to describe, right? Because um, we get into kind of paradoxes, but um, but it's not as real as those things that are the forms. And, and if you ever spent any time with the forms, here's Plato's line. If you ever spent any time with the forms, you wouldn't want all this material stuff. You know, you wouldn't be interested in physical bodies and stuff like that. You just just want to, you know, contemplate. And mm-hmm. so Plato, you know, the, the, the Neoplatonists, the ones who are pagans, actually ended up um, writing against the Gnostics because the Gnostics represented a kind of um, position that they didn't, they didn't like. So, so Plotinus, for example, has a, a, tractus, a tractatus against um, the, the Gnostics in his Aeneads. Um, and, and Augustine himself was attracted by Neoplatonism. He, he thought that they had gotten a lot of stuff right. They just didn't have... Um, the, the things that really put things into perspective. Like, you know, he talks about them having the notion that the word, the logos, you know, just like, you know, in, in the book of uh, the, the Gospel of John, you know, whole logos is, is the word. 
the, the Neoplatonists, they, they knew that. They knew that the word was involved in, in the creation of, of everything. They didn't know that the Logos was Jesus Christ. They didn't know that there was uh-huh. a trinity. So he was actually, Augustine was actually quite positive towards the, the Neoplatonists. Um, but you can, you know, you can take Plato a couple different ways. Um, and so if you just latch on to the Demiurge idea mm-hmm. uh, and, and latch on to the matter is always bad, you know, the body is the, uh, how does Plato put it, the coffin of the soul, um, if you only focus on that stuff, then you can you can easily steer that in Gnostic currents, um, right? And that's what they that's what they did. So um, let's go back to to, to evil. Um, yeah. What are here, here's something to think about? What are those kinds of questions or problems that that evil typically poses for for human beings, and then you know, especially for Christians, because once you once you bring in a god like the you know the god that that Christians say is that you know here's here's the best view on things. It's Trinitarian, revealed through you know uh, God incarnate in Jesus Christ. Once you raise the stakes with that sort of thing, with that yeah. sort of view. Now you're really on the hook <laughs> to deal with evil <laughs> because um, yeah. one of, so one of the issues that that they're struggling with is does evil have some sort of essence? Does it have an independent existence, or is it something that results from the way that we look at things, or is it, as Augustine is going to say, a privation or a corruption of, of the good? And you've got to take a position on these one way or, or another, and, and every, every philosophical position will, in fact, have some sort of uh, uh, viewpoint on this, whether it, whether it makes even, it explicit. Even atheism, uh, right? Even even naturalism or atheism, because it's it's like you say, you know, this the the problem of evil, so to speak, is mm-hmm. the biggest objection I think to uh, not just theism, but as you say, to the Christian faith when you add Jesus and all that other in there. But I think you know when you're saying that every philosophical view has to deal with it, that that would include naturalism as well, right? Not just it's not just a problem for Christians. I think everybody has to somehow account for evil, even naturalism, whether you're denying it or, or whatever, it still has to somehow account for it. Yeah, and, and there's multiple perspectives that can be taken by somebody who's, who's a, an atheist. Um, they, they could actually say, although I don't see too many atheists doing this, well, there really is no such thing as evil. It's just in our heads. Um, right. Most of them are, you know, most of them will say, well, there, there is evil, you know, for example, people are dying of hunger and that's, that's a bad thing. So, um, but, you know, they don't have God in the picture, so they can say, well, the universe is screwed up. Um, or we just haven't fixed it yet. Or uh, what are some other common lines? Um, you know, there's this tragic... How about tragic the Holocaust? Stuff, stuff like the Holocaust, how, how do they... How have you seen them kind of respond to things like that? Some of the moral evil. Yeah, again, if you're um, if you're kind of you know if you're an atheist of the sort of 
everybody's a bastard kind of stripe. Um, somebody like, like, like Mankin, you know, that's, that's not yeah. a problem because you can say, well, you know, of course human beings are doing terrible things to each other. Look at them. They're human beings. Um, right. But you're right. They do have to have, they have to account for um, what they're going to take evil to be. So that's one of the questions. What is evil? And then, you know, we can ask ourselves, are there different kinds of evil? Are, are there different modalities? You know, are, are some more evil than others? How do we how do we measure these sorts of things? Right. Uh, and then there's and then there's the big one. What causes evil? You know, why is there evil at all rather than 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 none? And you know, every time you ask this in a theistic perspective, it's always who do we get to blame for it? You know, is it our fault? Is it God's fault? Is it uh, the devil's fault? You know, he's he's kind of a popular one to displace that too. But that doesn't actually work in, in, in traditional Christian theology because, you know, somebody like somebody like Augustine will come along and say, whoa, you know, two problems there. First off, if you're going to blame the devil for your own failings, you've got to explain just how it is that he was able to make you do anything when you actually have free will. So there's the, the front end. And then on the back end, you know, wait a second. If the devil is a bad guy, who made him a bad guy? You know, why did God create him in such a way that he could actually fall? Um, so, the, you know, the devil, the devil made me do it or the devil's the bad one, that doesn't really solve anything. Uh, and, you're, and you're placed back in the same sort of problem. And so Augustine is going to try to address these by thinking about, well, what actually is evil? Where does it reside? Um, how does evil come about? And he, he was deeply concerned about this. Again, you can see this in the confessions, not just for you know, a semester, not just for uh, a year, but for for a long time in his life, trying to make sense out of uh, why things are the way they are and, and why why he, he himself was screwed up. Um, you know, he if we look at, for example, in the Confessions, in Book 2, there's this uh, incident of the pear tree, it's called, because uh, Augustine is a, essentially a juvenile delinquent and goes off with a bunch of his friends and they're coming home, and there's a neighbor's uh, uh, orchard that has this pear tree that's got all sorts of fruit on it. It's not particularly good fruit, but, um, you know, it's okay. And so Augustine and his buddies say, let's rob it. We're going to steal all the fruit, um, which, you know, is, is, is committing a crime uh, and doing something wrong. And right. so... You know, why are they doing it? This is Augustine looking back at it. He's like, what, what was wrong with me at the time? And he says, did I want to eat the fruit? No, because we, we just took a couple bites and then we threw it to the pigs. So wow. what was it I was really after? Well, I wanted to steal something. I wanted to do something wrong. And so did my, my friends. And we kind of egged each other on. And then he thinks some more about, well, you know, when people do things wrong, why do they do it? And, you know, in a lot of cases, when people do things wrong, we have an easy explanation. You know, he, uh, he killed that guy because he was sleeping with his wife, and the guy came home, and, uh, you know, things got out of hand, and then he shot him. 
So you can say, well, it was a uh, crime of passion or sexual desire, or he poisoned that guy over there because he wanted the money that was you know, coming to him from the will. You know, there's a lot of explanations for, for evil actions that don't take an awful lot of, of digging to find out. You know, he, why, did, why did that guy um, steal? Well, he wanted the money. Um, Augustine says, well, in this case, it wasn't anything like that. I wasn't getting anything out of it. My buddies weren't getting anything out of it. So, and again, he's asking, what was wrong with me? Why, why did I do this? And he thinks it out a little bit more, and he says, you know, a lot of times we're attracted to things because, to vicious things, because they kind of, in a distant way, imitate God. So pride, you know, is kind of an imitation of God, a very distorted, shadowy image um, because, you know, pride is this sort of self-assertion. And only God can really assert him, himself as, as, you know, truly existent. Uh, and he runs through this whole list and he says, no, that wasn't it either. It wasn't any of those things. So why did I do this wrong action? Am I just like totally screwed up? Or did I want to commit the theft for the sake of doing something wrong? But why would I want to do something wrong for the sake of doing something wrong, not to get anything out of it? And he, he comes to this point, and this is what often happens when we analyze evil far enough, where you kind of have to shrug and say, there really isn't any explanation. This is a nothing. I was able to, to choose nothing over being, because that's, that's how far our free will extends we're able to choose nothing for its own sake and and make that, you know, part of our motivational structure. Wow. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, that's that's what happened with uh, the devil and that's what happened with, with us when we got screwed up. And, um, you know, we're going to keep on doing it in one way or another unless we sort of get a handle on it is what Augustine would say. Um, I mean, if we're fortunate enough to, to not go the wrong way and have a good upbringing and, and have the grace that we need granted to us and actually make use of it the way we're supposed to, that's great. But Augustine is for all the rest of us who didn't, who didn't go that way. You know, he wants right. to figure out, well, well, what do you do once you've actually, once you're actually damaged goods, once you've actually, uh, screwed things up. So, you know, he really wants to to understand um, what is going on when, when something is, is evil. So this is probably a good place to jump into his, his metaphysics of, of evil. And I'm just going to kind of give, um, you know, sort of talking points. There, you could spend an entire semester on any one of these, sort of culling them out. Um, but, but, you know, it's a hour and a half radio segment, so we're just <laughs> we'll, And we'll definitely have you back on, too. Let, let, let me ask you this, Dr. Sadler. What time did you want to uh, start taking callers so people can, can know what time they should uh, start to call in? Why don't we say about, um, how about 7.30? Does that sound good? Oh, sure. So whatever, you, whatever you like. So. Uh, 7.30, folks, you can start calling in and uh, start uh, uh, asking, asking your questions to Dr. Sadler. 
I'll turn it back over to you. You say you get into the to the metaphysical issues. Yeah. So in Augustine's metaphysics, you know, he he's a theist. <clears throat> so anytime you've got a theist, um, what's what's ultimate being going to be the supreme being? It's going to be God, and so that's that's no big surprise. And he he talks about um, God as being not only you know the highest being, but being supreme existence. God has being in a way that other beings don't, because he's the one who grants existence to everything else. And it's interesting, because in the discussions about evil, I never really noticed this until I was, you know, going back over these texts, that famous, you know, Exodus passage, I am who I am, that comes up in these discussions. You may say, well, why does that come up? Well, because God, that's the way that God signifies, at least for Augustine, Thomas Aquinas will say this too, that he is uh, being itself, that he is the being that grants other being being. And so when you're asking why are other things not God, why are other things not, you know, eternal like God is, or why are they not perfect like God is? Well, because then God would have just created another God. You know, right? Um, and you wouldn't be able to tell them apart, would you? <laughs> yeah, you may as well. You know, if, and if he's going to create one, why not just create you know, ten hundred, you know, ten ten ranks of them, or or create a million of them? You know, he, he it's it's not the way. That, it's not what God does. So right. So God right. creates, and the created beings are not going to be. They are they are good, and they are extremely good. But they're not mm. going to be, you might say, God-caliber goodness, you know. Um, and so Augustine mentions this a couple times. And then he says, um, everything else that's created, insofar as it actually does have being, it's good. Because otherwise God wouldn't, you know, have, have, have created it. And um, what makes it good? <clears throat> well, God... Augustine talks about something that he calls generic good. And this is in the City of God, uh, chapter 12. He says that, um, oh, no, I'm sorry. This is, this is actually in the, uh, on, the, on the nature of the good against the Manichaeans. He says that everything is created with, with order and form and measure. In other places, he use the term number as well, like in, in on the uh, freedom of the will. Um, okay. And so Augustine has this idea that when something is created, like when you're created or when a tree is created, its 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 being is the way it is because God has given it the the order, the form, the structure, the the relation to other types of beings, its receptivities, its its acts, you know, the the acts that it engages in, its its processes of development, all this is rolled into that, and every one of those is a way in which it is good. So it's good for a plant to extend its roots into the ground to seek out water because that's that's the way it was made. It's also good for the the spider that bites you to inject its its venom. Uh, And that's one of the sort of things where we say, wait a second, that's not good because it hurts. Well, you know, 
insofar as it's a spider, when it's biting, it's supposed to be able to inject its venom. It's just, you know, maybe it's nice if it doesn't bite us. Um, maybe maybe we can avoid that. Um, Maybe it's better if it's just biting insects, if it's prey. Right, Um, right. Now, so then the question is, so if everything is is great the way it's it's made, where did all the the bad stuff come from? And Augustine, his his point that he's going to come back to over and over and over again, Evil doesn't, strictly speaking, exist by itself. It's not something independent, out there, uh, equal to to good. It doesn't have its own independent being. Evil is always parasitic upon upon the good. So it's always going to be what he calls a privation or corruption or pervert with respect to the will, a perversion of the good, a going astray. Perversion literally means to, to turn aside, you know? Wow. And so, you know, when the spider bites us and we feel pain, it's not a good thing, right? It's bad for our body. Um, Right. And it could actually be life threatening if it's, you know, a black widow or, you know, if you're allergic to brown recluse bites and it's a brown recluse or something like that. Um, but that's because something has gone wrong somewhere. And um, most of the time, the going wrong is going to be traced back to something choosing something at, at some point in time. Um, and we'll come to that in, in just a moment. There's one thing I really want to stress, which is that Augustine says, not every privation is necessarily evil. So although all evil is privation, not all privation is evil. So, for example, um, darkness. Darkness is, is not evil. Darkness is the absence of light. It's a privation of, of the light that could be there. Um, but it's not a bad thing in and of itself. As a matter of fact, it's right. really nice to have darkness when you're trying to sleep, you know. <laughs> right. and, and he says, you know, God created these privations to be, you know, the right way when they're fitting. Um, silence is a privation of sound, of speech, of voice. Um, nothing wrong with silence. As a matter of fact, silence sometimes is exactly what we want. <laughs> but um, it is a privation. So not every privation is, a, is necessarily a bad thing. And if we take the right perspective, we might even be able to see that um, you know, when it comes down to it, the spider biting me is really not that bad of a thing. Uh, it's, it's certainly not, you know, evil in the sense of my going around to my neighbor and, you know, attacking them for no reason. Um, right. It's, you know, it's these, these, these processes and, and it, you know, there is pain, but pain is not exactly the same thing as, as evil. Um, so then the question that, that's still, you know, lingering out here is that's great. So evil is is privation of the good. Now, how does that happen? How did evil get into this whole process to begin with? And and this is where Augustine um, tried out a couple different ideas, and and some of these he got from the, the Manichaeans, and some he got from other uh, uh, 
pagan viewpoints that came from from you know ancient Greek philosophy. For example, you know one way to make sense out of out of evil is to say God didn't create everything out of nothing. God made stuff out of uh, some pre-existing matter, and it just wasn't up to code. You know, uh, right. the materials weren't as good as they could have been, and so he put it together the best way that he could, but you know, um, it's still a, a B plus job. <laughs> and for the person who's been <laughs> in the wrong place at the wrong time, when the, the faucet doesn't work, or you know, we're making some some pretty extended analogies here, but you get the idea. Um, you know, the, the evil was unavoidable. Some some bad right. things crept in. So so you know, for example, when God created human beings, he you know, if he'd had better material to work with, maybe not clay, you know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe not. No, you know, we don't. If, if we if we get away from that notion, we say, well, maybe God created us by by uh, making some some animate you know material first and then formed it. Who who knows? Uh, when it comes down to, to all that, we can come up with all sorts of interesting speculative situations. But we could say God could have done it better. But Augustine says, you know, that doesn't really get you off the hook because God's God. So presumably, you know, for example, if I, if I come across a bunch of boards and I say, I'm going to make a house, and it turns into a shack or a shanty, um, and I said, well, you know, I did the best with what I had, um, that's an excuse for me. But if, if God comes across those boards, why didn't God turn them into better boards? Right? Right, right. So, so the God came across bad matter and couldn't make couldn't make a better thing out of it that's not going to work for for a christian um or really that's not going to work for even a, a neoplatonist um because you know once you introduce omnipotence and omniscience and, and yeah right and, yeah so then the question is well all right so how did things get screwed up and that's where augustine is going to turn to the will. And he's not coming up with this idea by himself. He, he says, other people had proposed this idea to me, and I didn't really understand it. And then later on, I, I you know, thought it through, and, and now I finally, I finally got it. It was the will, or, or rather you know, multiple instances of, of willing, that have brought the evil that we know um, at least you know a good portion of it into existence as something that's parasitic on on the being that we know. So what makes a will bad? Um, Augustine says it's turning away from higher goods to lower goods, and the highest good, of course, is God. So ultimately, what makes a will bad is turning away from God towards other things that aren't God. And, and usually it involves sort of treating them as God, right? You know, if I, right. if I become uh, addicted to, to, to something, I make that into my, my, uh, my object of devotion. Um, if, I, if I, you know, uh, make the self into the center of existence, then I make myself into a, a little God. Uh, and the problem is that, you know, these, these created things, they just can't take that sort of stress. They're they're not up to it, and so um, they're not gonna they're not gonna uh, 
they're not going to give us what we want. That's a problem on the side of the object. On the side of the person, it's not that they pursue evil things. They're pursuing good things. If I decide that, that for example, um, drinking or promiscuous sex or, or berating my students so that I feel like a, a big guy, you know, uh, if, if that's going to be what I center my life around rather than, than God, um, it's not that, that there's anything wrong with drinking per se, it's that placed in the place of the higher good. And that act of willing that, that's where things go wrong for Augustine. Now, of course, you know, if you I drink know. too much, that's not good for your liver, it's not good for your brain. Um, but all the things that are good, they don't stop being good because I misuse them, but I stop being good, at uh. least in respect of my will, by misusing them. And even still, there's still a lot of goodness in me. Augustine actually says, totally screwed up human being is still better as a human being than something that doesn't have a free will. Like, you know, a snake. Uh, right. So even, even you know, uh, the degenerate <clears throat> who has totally messed himself up is better than a, than a snail, which didn't do anything wrong. Just, you know, did whatever snails do. Eat, you know, <laughs> eat things and, and uh, make little snails and, and stuff like that. Uh, because evil is parasitic upon, upon goodness. So e- even the will itself, when I make my will bad <clears throat> by making the wrong decisions, perhaps reinforcing them, you know, and, and telling myself it's okay to do that, I don't make myself completely thoroughly evil so there's a really interesting implication of this not even the devil is totally evil. right right because because to, to be totally evil would be to lack being altogether right it's, it's interesting um, one of the best depictions of this sort of viewpoint of what it would be like to imagine what the devil must be like that I've ever come across was in, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis wrote um, this, this, this set of uh, science fiction books called the Space Trilogy. I don't know if you've ever read them. Um, I've not. No, I've, 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 heard, I've read Lewis, but I've not read those. Yeah, so in it, he, you know, one set on Mars and one set on Venus, and of course the last one is on Earth, and um, the devil shows up. In, in, in one of them, in the middle one. And um, Lewis is trying to describe an entity which would be as close to pure evil as possible. And the way that it's able to do so is by being as close to non-being as possible, to almost not exist as a sentient, rational being and it, it, you know it's very difficult to to depict this sort of thing to even to imagine it that's that's why Lewis is such a powerful writer because he's got such great force of imagination um, 
but he's doing something that, that Augustine would have looked at and said, yeah, I think he's, he's on the right track there. Um, so going back to us, getting away from can, I, can, I ask a, can I ask a question real quick, Dr. Sandler? Absolutely. Yeah, because we were saying, um, I, I took a, my seminary, I took a class with Dr. Geisler a whole semester on the, the problem of evil. And uh, he's saying, you know, a lot of the same stuff you were you were saying as well. One question I had is, you know, when we said the devil wouldn't be 100% evil or he wouldn't exist. And Dr. Geisler would say, for example, like if you have a car, you know, imagine rust to a car. That would kind of be like uh, evil to, to something that was good. And if you had something that was 100% rust, well, then you don't even have a car. Exactly. So there's some yeah. aspects of the devil, for example, like, uh, you know, having the free will, that kind of stuff that is good. What about morally? Would, would it be correct to say he's, like, 100% morally evil, not necessarily metaphysically evil, or, or what would you say to that? Yeah, that's, that's a good way to distinguish these aspects apart from each other. Um, I mean, in traditional Christian theology that, you know, Augustine would be a representative of and, and say somebody like Anselm and is, you know, on the fall of the devil and, and Aquinas and people like that, um, the fallen angels, they made the wrong choice and they can't unmake it and they can't um, change their mind about it. They've, they've so damaged themselves that now they can only will the wrong things. They could they could will multiple wrong things, you know. Should I should I try to seduce this guy now, or try to do it later? Again, think of Lewis and the screw tape letters and the one devil giving advice to the other devil about how to how to be a good um, tempter. Um, right. But they're always they're always going to choose the the wrong. They're always going to choose to. They're always going to hate the good. They're always going to want to damage the good. Um, you know, it's interesting because, in a sense, they're still dependent upon goodness without without wanting to be so, uh, insofar as they envy, insofar as they detract, insofar as they want to destroy the, the good. Right. And so there's still, a, there's still a certain kind of parasitical uh, relation there. But yeah, morally... Um, within a you know traditional theistic framework, the devil's about as bad as you can get. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that would be the I guess that would be the the distinction there. Let's uh, if if it's okay, let's take a two minute break. It's seven thirty. We'll uh, get people kind of queued up if they want to call in. Uh, the number is seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. That number again is seven six zero. Five four two three nine zero seven. If you have a question on uh, evil or Augustine's view, love to hear from you. You don't have to uh, to agree with us, of course. You can. Uh, you don't have to be a Christian to call in, uh, but we'd we'd love to hear from you. We'll just take a, a quick two minute break, and we'll be right back. And uh, we'd love to take your guys' phone calls. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. Apologist. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. It's no secret that philosophy has been given a bad rap by some in Christian circles. Why do you think that's the case? Well, bad philosophy needs a bad rap. Uh, And a lot of Christians, that's all they know. 
Colossians 2.8 says, beware of philosophy. Actually, there's a definite article of the in Greek. He's talking about a particular bad philosophy. It was kind of incipient Gnosticism that existed there. Christians have nothing to fear from a good philosophy. In fact, we need good philosophy to answer the bad philosophy, as C.S. Lewis said. So I think Christians need to get into philosophy because God commanded it, because uh, the world uh, demands it, and because the results confirm it. Uh, I can tell you any number of people who have been trained in philosophy and apologetics who have had great ministries and winning people to Christ who would not otherwise have been won to Christ. I have a whole file full of people who said, I was an agnostic, I was an atheist, I read your book, uh, I appreciated the reasoning that was in it, and I've come to know uh, Christ, and I want to thank you for uh, writing that book. So the uh, proof of the pudding is in the uh, eating. They, it has good results. Uh, good philosophy has good results. You can't know error without studying truth. But you can't answer error without studying philosophy because you wouldn't go to a doctor who didn't study sickness. If you went to a doctor who said, what's wrong with that? He said, I got a pain in my apostat near my zorch or wherever you get pains. And he said, uh, what would you like to know about health? He said, look, doctor, I'm, I'm dying. I got a pain. I don't want to know about health. I want to know, can you cure this sickness I've got? So you can know the truth, but if you don't know error, you don't know how to apply the truth to the error and when the people were in error. Theology Matters, and we have Dr. Sadler on the line, and we are uh, looking at Augustine and the problem of evil and how he answers some of these questions. What is evil? Is it something that God created? Uh, is God responsible for evil? How do we as Christians deal with some of these topics, some of these questions that come up over and over and over again? We'd love to take your call uh, and your, your question. At seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. Now's your chance to talk to Dr. Sadler. And uh, you know, Dr. Sadler, one of the one of the things that um, one of the recent experiences I have uh, had uh, at Winthrop University. I'm a Ratio Christi chapter director, which is it's just an apologetics ministry on the college campuses, and uh, we recently held a 
big event, uh, kind of to kick our kick our club off and get us on campus, called his Science Buried God, and uh, we had over over 200 students show up. It was really amazing. And uh, where I'm at, Winthrop is one of the most liberal colleges, if not the most liberal college in the Carolinas. And uh, it was actually the Freethinkers that that hosted us, uh, which wow. is another story. It's funny. A lot of the Christian ministries that are on the campus are they just they don't want to work with you. They're they're either suspicious and skeptical of philosophy and apologetics, or they are worried you're going to take their students. So it was actually the, uh, the free thinkers that hosted it. But the, the following night, they invited us to come into their, um, into their meeting, because they have weekly meetings. It was Wednesday night, uh, and it normally goes from 8 to 9. They said, we'd love to have you guys come, and we'll just deal with this issue of Christians and philosophy. And uh, so the meeting normally gets out at 9, but uh, we were there for almost two hours uh, answering wow. questions. And one of the biggest ones that kept coming up was this problem of evil. And uh, they were really, really going after the God of, you know, in the Old Testament, the Canaanites. That was a real stumbling block for them. But, uh, man, it's just it's amazing to see the need for good, sound philosophy, as Dr. Geisler was, was talking about there, but also to kind of have a working understanding of some of these these guys like Augustine. So this isn't just you know, stuff that uh, people sit in the ivory towers and think about on real-life level. Uh, we we deal with, with, with these issues, don't we? Yeah, and, you know, I mean, that, that question is sort of the question of does God ever command us to do something that's, <clears throat> that's evil, um, which is a, a related topic. But, you know, a lot of people, how it comes up is uh, – you know, they're going along okay, and, and they're going to church, and, and their life seems to be on track. And then they they encounter, it's not like they didn't encounter evil at all before, um, but, but something really bad happens. And, and they, you know, somebody does a horrific act, or, um, you know, somebody dies who they're very close to. And it seems very unfair. And then they start saying, "What? What is wrong with God? Why does He allow this this sort of thing? Or why did He take this person from me? Or why? You know, it's always this question: Why? 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 Why is there evil rather than just goodness everywhere? Um, and you know, Augustine has a number of different answers. That he this is this is the question of theodicy, the you know literally the ways of God. Um, why does why does God permit there to be evil in the universe? And probably the most metaphysical answer that I, we've talked about a little bit already is only God is God. And so everything else does have a kind of propensity to get screwed up, to, to go astray. And when God gave us uh, free wills, um, this is one of the places where a lot of people say, well, why did God do something that, that crazy, you know? It's like putting a loaded gun in somebody's hand, you know, to give them free will. Well, you know, Augustine talks about this in, on the freedom of the will. He says, if God didn't do that, then God would not have created a being like us that could actually choose the good for its own sake and do the right thing. You know, if we were just a bunch of robots, um, true, we, we wouldn't do the wrong thing, 
but we would never do the right thing because it was the right thing. We would just do it because it was our programming. Um, right. And, and God wants creatures more like God. So that's that's one answer that, that he, he gives. Um, you know, another another answer that is kind of commonsensical, but, again, a lot of people don't really uh, uh, like to hear is, what makes you think that God is responsible for, for your or other people's misuse of free will? You know, <laughs> that's what it means to have free will. Um, and it doesn't do, you know, I mean, if you can't blame it on the devil, you can't really blame it on God either. You can say, well, God gave me these propensities to, to fall in this way. Well, you know, he, he also gave you an awful lot of, uh, uh, helpful hints about how not to, and you know places where you you might be able to go for some some assistance, and and you know if he gives grace, then that's also there too. Um, so that doesn't you know that's not a, a particularly uh, good response to to that one. So Augustine says you know God is not responsible for the misuse of of uh, free will. Um, he also notes that, that quite often our, our perspective can be one-sided or, or, or you know, we only look at, at a limited amount of things uh, that concern us and we, we blow up the things that, that bother us into huge, huge uh, issues. So you know, sometimes God actually does bring good out of evil. He permits evil to occur so that good can come out of it. Augustine himself says that was, you know, a recurrent thing within his own uh, faith narrative, the confessions, that God let him, you know, God, why did God allow Augustine to be a, a Manichaean? Why didn't God just immediately illuminate him and say, don't go by those guys? As a matter of fact, why didn't God do that for all those Manichaeans? Now, if we're going to say he right. should have done it for Augustine, why... Why doesn't God do everything for all of us all the time it is the sort of logical conclusion of that. And Augustine says, well, that's, that's not the way he, he works. And he does, in fact, you know, bring good out of the damaged good that is, that is evil in a lot of cases. Um, Another thing that he says that's, that again, uh, some people won't like to hear this uh, because it, it sounds as if, you know, um, we're just sort of explaining things away. Augustine's really serious about this point, though. He says, when God punishes us for doing the wrong things, mm-hmm. um, he is actually making things right he's actually producing more good by doing so. Even, even if we don't change, even if we say, ah, I'm not going to take this divine punishment. I, as a matter of fact, I'm going to be even worse. Um, God, by, by, by not letting us get off the hook, is creating justice. And justice is a good. And Augustine says, in a situation like that, there's actually more good than there was originally before the person was punished. Sounds kind of uh, 
kind of counterintuitive uh, in some ways. But because um, we usually look at punishment as just you know just a bad thing, otherwise it wouldn't be punishment, right? Uh, right. If you if you don't do something that somebody doesn't like, you're not really punishing them. You're probably rewarding <laughs> them. Um, but in those sorts of cases, there is more good uh, created. Uh, Augustine says. Um, so, uh, you know, when I when I started thinking about this today, I, I realized that um, a lot of the objections that people make about well, you know, why didn't God intervene here? Why didn't God fix this? Why, why does God allow this to happen? I think a lot of people sort of imagine that unless God intervenes at every single moment, he's doing the wrong thing. So by allowing natural processes, you know, for instance, why didn't, why didn't God stop this drunk driver from killing this child? on the, uh, the road, you know, at, at dusk. Um, why didn't he make the car swerve aside? Um, well, should he have done that in, in that case? Should he do it in every single case? Should God be sort of like the guardrail for, you know, or imagine an infinite set of guardrails for, for the entire universe, making sure that every single thing always remains on track? Then he would be sort of like the infinite nanny, you know? Right. Um, but also do away be, with the free will in a sense, wouldn't it? If every time you went to do something, you know, say you got mad and you wanted to shoot somebody, and uh, yeah. God turns the the bullet into you know jello, <laughs> you know, as it's as it's going, in a sense, it would be, uh, it would be taking away um, free will in a sense, right? Yeah, you know, the further that we imagine these things, um, the more nonsensical they become. You know, why jello? Why not just a, a bunch of flowers? But then who would make guns? You know? <laughs> and who would shoot them? Um, you know, once you start thinking these things out, you start realizing you, you, what, what they want is a universe that's vastly different than what was created. And, and again, this will be something that people don't want to usually hear. That's sort of like thinking, I, I'm smarter than God. I can one-up God. God really doesn't measure up because he didn't create the kind of universe that I would rather he have created. Um, that's where that line of, of thinking ultimately goes, I think. Right. Um, yeah, I think you're right. So, you know, uh, one of the things I thought about, if we had enough time to talk about it, there was sure. a... a there was an interesting set of passages in the city of God that... Um, I think I just sort of glossed over before when I'd read through them in the past. Um, but Augustine says some, some uh, things that are, on the one hand, kind of playing around with language, which it makes perfect sense. Like I taught rhetoric for a living for a long time. And on the other side, um, really deep metaphysical insights. He, he's asking about whether evil has what we call an efficient cause, that is something which, which makes it to be, uh, you know, to come into being, to, to happen. And he says evil doesn't have an efficient cause. Why? 
Well, because it's deficient. It, it's, uh, the evil will is not an effect of something, but a defect. And he's playing off of, you know, effectus, defectus in, in Latin, um, but he's really getting at something. Every time that we try to, to explore evil and to make sense of it, there's this tendency to want to turn it into a thing that we can totally understand, that we can wrap our head around, that, um, you know, we can have a, a comprehensive theory of. And that works for things that, that have positive existence to the degree that we can do that, right? Um, I mean, we're not great at doing that even with things that have positive existence. But evil doesn't, precisely because it is a corruption, because it is a, a privation, because it is a defect in, in what ought to be there but isn't there. And there's, right. there's many ways in which this can, you know, can go, go wrong. And so the explanation for why is my will screwed up, why did I choose the wrong things, is not ultimately going to be something outside of me mm-hmm. that that influenced me. You know, I, I, right. I slept with that, that woman because I was so attracted to her. I chose to act on that attraction. You know, uh, I, I chose right. to attack that person over there. I chose to, to, to give in to that, that you know, uh, emotion. It's right. not like there is some sort of magnetic draw that I could not possibly withstand there's always some sort of you know failure within the person's will itself and the more that we give into those the more damaged our wills become right you know yeah and that's how you see there's there's that accountability you know so to speak on our part to uh, to God for that. We we actually have a caller, Doctor Sadler. If uh, if that's oh, okay, go ahead and go Absolutely. to him or her. <laughs> All right. Hello. Hey, hello, caller. Are you there? Yes. Yes. Great show. Great show. Uh, hey, what, uh, what's that, your name and where are you calling from? My name is Stanley. I'm calling all the way from Montreal, Canada. Ah, ah great. Uh, uh, I'm listening to the show and everything. I think that is the greatest question uh, that a lot of people who are Christian and who believe in God and things like that ask is, and, I, I'm, and I'm a little bit uh, confused with what you're saying, is if God is almighty and everything, how come he doesn't stop evil? How come he doesn't stop from every day there's a kid getting raped or famine happening in Africa or the tsunami if he's all powerful like he is, why doesn't he stop all this evil from happening? And second question I would ask is, if God is saying that I'm not going to do that because I have a bigger purpose of this, I don't understand that. I don't because me, right. if I had the power of God and if I had the power to do whatever I needed to do and I had something so precious as human beings and I could stop evil happening to them, I would. It would be like a parent saying, as a as a parent, I would sacrifice my life for my kid. So I don't understand mm-hmm. how come God doesn't have the the thing of seeing. You know what? Uh, perfect example: the twenty kids who got killed. Where was God when that happened? Great question. Don't hang up. Stay on the line with us. 
Dr. Sadler, uh, we got about eight minutes in the, in the show, and I'll I'll let you guys kind of have some dialogue. So I'll turn it over to you. Okay. So uh, with the first question, that's part of what we were talking about earlier. Um, why why doesn't God intervene in this case? Why doesn't God intervene in all cases? Um, when you follow that that line of reasoning out far enough, you get why doesn't why isn't the universe radically different from the way it actually is as we experience it? Um, and Augustine has a has a couple different you know answers that we we talked about, but we can go back over them. When it comes to um, you know the second question is a bit more interesting if 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 God has something in mind, if God is going to bring evil out of good or if that's you know the, the answer um, why does you know, we could ask a couple questions why doesn't he do it a hell of a lot quicker? why doesn't he tell us what exactly it is? why doesn't he you know do so with less collateral damage you know we could we could multiply a lot of questions here and um Augustine's answer to to the basic problem is um, it's, it's a little bit complex. God doesn't control what people do with their free will. So when people, you know, say let's say we take child abuse, right? Um, a child abuser is choosing on some level. Augustine would say, even if they have you know these urges and, and all that sort of stuff going on, to do the wrong action. God doesn't intervene at every single point in time where yeah theoretically he could since he is omnipotent right, um, but he doesn't. Why not? Because it, were he to do so. Mm-hmm then free will wouldn't mean anything. And now that's not, you know, that doesn't sound like a very great answer because you say, well, hell, then maybe we should get rid of free will because it was, you know, look at the horrible yeah. things that people do with it, you know. Yeah. Um, but Augustine thinks that despite the amount of terrible things, and he knew about all sorts of atrocities and horrible things that were taking place, um, even mentions at one point, you know, in a different text. Thank, thank goodness I took this course instead of that course. Uh, I was mistaken about the, the path that I was going to go on because the, the, the Donatists were waiting for me and they were armed and they probably would have killed me. Um, so he knew human suffering. He knew all these, these sorts of things that we, we bring up. Um, and he knew how stupid we can be as well. You know, he talks about how when he was a kid he got beaten for not learning Greek and didn't make him want to learn, any, you know, learn Greek any better. Um, it's still the case, Augustine thinks, that having free will is a positive good that in some way outweighs the terrible things that we as human beings do with our free will. Now, that's, you know, ultimately none of these things are going to give us a a, oh, that, now that makes perfect sense. Uh, I feel totally satisfied with this sort of answer. Well, least, least, Dr. Dr. Sadler, let, let, me, let me ask this as well, because, and I've, I've asked the caller this as well. I'd like to get your thoughts. If we say 
Why doesn't God step in on things like, for example, 20 kids getting, you know, uh, murdered? Why yeah. don't we extrapolate that to everything of evil that happens? Why, why yeah. just the big ones? Why not all of it? And if you do that, then, then how do you maintain free will in, in any sort of way? And I, that's the caller that maybe I'd, I'd like some of your thoughts on that. Yeah, I agree with you. It's like, I understand what he's saying, that basically we have free will, but if God is all, if God could see the future and sees everything that's happening, and Mm -hmm. before God, before Jesus and everything happened, God was interfering in everything. I'm sorry. God could decide, he came to his own people, Jewish people, and interfered many times. When they were crying and asking him for him, they were there. They weren't saying, Les, I'm going to give you free will and leave you in the slavery and this is better for you. No, he interfered. When he needed to protect well, his people, he interfered. Yeah, he didn't just I think you have to be careful in saying that he interfered many times because you're talking about, you know, a long history. And let's, let's even say that you know, they left out you know, that they, they reduced the amount of God's interventions <clears throat> by a thousandfold, that for every single, you know, uh, account of the miracle in, in, in the Bible and some sort of act of God, that there are really a thousand that didn't make it in. That would still be a case in which most of the time he doesn't intervene. It, it looks from our perspective as if, you know, right. he's intervening all the time because we're only paying attention to that part of the story. Think about the Gospels, right. for example. You know, when I would talk with my students, they would say, you know, we, we, uh, we don't know that much about this, this Jesus guy. And I'd say, well, they didn't, they didn't think it was important to say how tall he was or what color hair he had or what he had for lunch on Tuesday or, or stuff like that. They kind of stuck to the big the things that they were really impressed by and thought should go into the narrative. And I think if we're going to talk about, like, the whole of the Old Testament and biblical history and, and um, talk about miracles, we have to have that same sort of perspective where we say, what we've got here are narratives that give us a tiny little insight into a little bit of what was happening. And these things were considered to be really important, essential events, but most of the time God wasn't changing things. God wasn't doing things, um, you know, uh, radically different in saying, I'm going to make the Red Sea, you know, part. Most of the time the Red Sea is uh, actually in its bed, and he's not messing around with it, you know? Right. Hmm. Does that that help at all? uh, Yeah, and that's that's a big question. That is the question of me, a lot of Christians, including me, has a problem with the evil. That that is the big question because I understand what he said that right. it's about free will. But I do not agree when he's saying when Augustine said it's better to have free will than this. I'm sorry. A lot of people would wish that. Well then you do, then you disagree. Yep, that's fine. You can disagree with Augustine if you want to. Um but I yeah. think a lot of people would agree, would love him to interfere, would love him to see him, would love the interference, would love, like he said, well, that, like one of the person, would love him to interfere when 20 kids are getting well, or okay. so, so a lot of people would. What does that mean? That a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people would love if we handed out, you know, 
a lot of people like chocolate, so you know if we sent out free chocolate every every month, a lot of people would be happy with that. But that doesn't that doesn't really have much bearing upon on the issue. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, just in, in a Christian like, context, that's, that's yeah, in, in a Christian context too. Just just to the caller here, we got to wrap this up. But uh, in the Christian context, um, everybody is evil because we've all fallen in Adam and we've all done our own sins against the Lord. So if we say, well, I want the Lord to just eradicate all evil, well, he starts with you and me. And I don't think we want that. <laughs> Again, that's, a, that's from a Christian theological perspective, but uh, would, would, wouldn't you say that, Dr. Sadler? Well, I mean, Augustine would say that we're still, no matter how bad we are, Insofar mm-hmm. as we have being, that being right. is good. A, a fallen mm-hmm. will is is an evil will, but as will, it's still a, a good thing. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't. I would. I mean, we we can say we're all we're all sinners, which is quite true. Um, right. But that's not to say that we're like evil through and through. You know. Okay. Right. That makes sense. That that that, that makes sense. Uh, we actually are over our time on the show, but caller, I really appreciate you calling in, and, and, and uh, you're will, always. And I will. 